Welcome to Ag Future, presented by Alltech. Join us as we explore the challenges and opportunities facing the global food supply chain and speak with experts working to support a planet of plenty. I'm Tom Martin, and we're joined by Donnie Smith, former Tyson Foods CEO. And under Smith's leadership, Tyson achieved four consecutive years of record profits, multiplying stock values six times in seven years. In 2014, Smith and his wife, Terry, pledged $3.2 million to the University of Tennessee to establish the Donald and Terry Smith Endowed Chair for International Sustainable Agriculture. And then in 2018, the Smiths funded the Smith Center for International Sustainable Agriculture at the University of Tennessee Institute of Agriculture. So we're going to focus on what's keeping Donnie Smith busy these days. And you'll soon hear why it's a fitting conclusion to our purpose-driven business series. Greetings, Donnie Smith. Hey, thanks, Tom. It's good to be with you today. And talk about purpose-driven. That would seem to describe your current work around sustainable agriculture in countries on the African continent. And I've heard you speak about this, and it's very clear that you have a genuine, deeply felt passion for this work. What drives that passion, and what has drawn you to Africa? Honestly, Tom, I can't ever remember not being fascinated with the African continent. Um, and then later, you know, in my career at Tyson, let's focus in around, well, about 2010 or so, I think God just laid a burden on my heart and said, you know, I've trained you in poultry production, logistics, you name it. And, you know, it's time for you to take what you've learned through this at that point, 20 something year career at Tyson and, and go implore that, employ that somewhere on the African continent. And, and so there's just been a, a passion in my heart for the African farmer and helping them to try to compete on the world stage and, and, and get past subsistence farming and actually make farming a commercial endeavor like it is you know, here in the U.S. and in other developed worlds. Well, Donnie, Africa accounts for a significant proportion of the world population growth that's expected in the next 30 years or so. How significant and what are the implications for Africa and for the world, for that matter? You know, I call what you're talking about the grand challenge. Um, between now and 2050. So if you're a if you're a young person just entering the workplace listening to this podcast in your working career, we will add about 2 billion people in into the population and about a billion of those will inhabit the continent of Africa. So, you know, the continent of Africa is somewhere around the, you know, short billion today. And so the population there is going to double now, the, the, the interesting part of the challenge is, is because, you know, incomes will improve and urbanization will happen and several other, you know, socioeconomic events, we're going to need to produce about twice as much food as we're producing today while restoring the resource use to make that food. We're today... Um, I've heard several scientists estimate that we're using about 1.2 to 1.3 planets worth of resources to produce a planet's worth of food. And hey, by the way, we're still leaving about seven or 800 million people behind because they're food insecure. So somehow over the next 30 years, we've got a double food production 
and we've got to restore the planet to where we're only using one planet's worth of resources to make that planet's worth of food. And and for me, the most concerning part is half of the population growth is going to happen on the Af- African continent, where we find a large portion of stunted children, you know, food insecure people, very very low income, you know, per capita incomes, on you know, as as compared to other countries in the world. So, so that's a huge challenge for us and, and one that I'm dedicating the rest of my life to try to have some impact in. What are some things that the developed world takes for granted that are just not present or available in many African countries? Uh, you know, and, and, and maybe my answer is going to be more to scale, but, but here's, there, there's, there's four things that immediately jump into my mind. Number one, a transportation infrastructure. You know, we take it for granted that, you know, you've got trucks traveling on the interstate highways at, you know, 70 miles an hour carrying 80,000 pounds plus, you know, railroad infrastructure, highways, bridges, all that stuff. And and then when you get to Africa and and you try to get around, it is it's just incredibly slow and incredibly frustrating. The electrical grid and the energy infrastructure, it, it, you know, it's not that it's non-existent, but, you know, we, we in the developed world, we, we never worry about when we flip on the switch, it's like 99.9% chance the lights are going to come on. Yeah, it's a 50-50 proposition in a lot of African countries and not, not you know, you know, pretty much everybody in America is powered. Um, you know, in Africa and a lot of African countries, maybe half of their population is actually powered these days. And the energy grid is just so unreliable. We we never make feed in Rwanda for a week. Well, it, it, generally speaking, for a day without the power grid failing on us. Oh, wow. um, and, 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 you know, access to capital, uh, access to finance you know, to finance the reoccurring costs, uh, you know, those we take for granted here, you know, every day. And it is a very difficult proposition to find reasonably priced capital and certainly reasonably priced financing on the continent. I think you've just touched on this a little bit, but I want to ask you, I know you began working in Rwanda in 2012. Is that right? Around then? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so, tell us about the conditions that you encountered when you began working there, and, and what kind of work you've been doing in Rwanda. So, our work in Rwanda is inside of our foundation. So, African Sustainable Agriculture Project is a foundation that our family established uh, about 2012. Um, and and so the the, the work we do is primarily focused on the poultry value chain, but not exclusively. Um, you know, what we try to do at ASAP, we, we believe the only sustainable form of agriculture is commerce, right? If you can't make a business out of it and make a living doing it, then it's constantly going to require a gift from somebody. And, you know, we've, we've, I don't know how many billions or maybe even trillions of dollars have been given to the African continent over the last 30 or 40 years. But I can tell you that many of the important metrics haven't moved much. So my belief is, is that donations aren't the answer. What Africa needs is direct foreign investment. It needs economic development. 
It needs capacity building, skills training, that sort of thing. And that's what ASAP is all about. You know, our goal is to build capacity among African farmers, teaching them the skills they need, the leadership they need, financial skills they need, enabling them where we can um, in, in a in a very low cost way to be able to begin an enterprise, largely in our case, a poultry enterprise. So in Africa, in, in Rwanda today, we have a feed mill. We actually opened the first commercial feed mill in the nation of Rwanda in 2012. Now think about, I mean, 2014. Now think about that. Before 2014, there was not a commercial feed mill operating in the country. Today, there's four or five. But, but I mean, that's, Seven years ago, right? Mm -hmm. That's not that long ago. Right. Uh, we also have a table egg farm producing table eggs, and then uh, we're in the in the uh, beginning processes of of the. We did a project with University of Tennessee and USAID to to pilot whether or not we could establish a broiler business, and uh, the pilot has ended, and we're now in the beginning processes of standing up a broiler business to produce uh, broiler meat. So that's our work in Rwanda. But I'm also, and, and that, again, that's all inside a nonprofit. Now, it, it, let me say this. Each of those three businesses that I mentioned is a registered for-profit Rwandan business, keeping to our principles at ASAP. That you, got, you have to have a, a sustainable, profitable business to really say that you're doing sustainable agriculture. I'm also involved, uh, one of the problems we have in poultry is the high price of corn and soybeans, which make up about 70% of the cost of the feed, and or maybe more, and which is about 70% of the cost of producing a chicken. And so um, understanding that, we're, I'm involved in a farm services business that is working on uh, seed reproduction, uh, you know, finding more efficient ways to do sustainable conservation agriculture at scale, uh, which, which we think is a, is a key to being able to get the input prices low enough to be able to grow animal source foods, chickens, you know, you name it, at a price that's affordable for a large portion of the population like we enjoy here in America today. Uh, so besides the, the philanthropic work, though, I'm also commercially involved. Um, Tyson Foods owns the, the, the chicken breed, Cobb Vantress. And Cobb's largest distributor on the African continent and their oldest distributor was the Irvine's family out of Zimbabwe. And I have partnered with the Irvine's family um, to help grow that business outside of Zimbabwe in sub-Saharan Africa. We're basically a day-old chicken feed supplier which is critical to, you know, having a, a poultry infrastructure um, in, that's, that's viable on the African continent. So, I, you know, I'm not only philanthropically involved, I'm also commercially involved. Again, goes back to my commitment. I will, I will spend the rest of my life trying to produce affordable food on that continent. I have to say that uh, African Sustainable Agriculture Project works out to be a great Acronym, doesn't it? ASAP. It does. ASAP. Let's get after it. We've got to get this done as soon as possible. Appropriate and clever there. Um, well, so what sorts of skills were needed when you arrived there that weren't there, and, and how have you helped people acquire them? So poultry, before we arrived, there was a general 
idea or mindset that you could not raise modern genetics successfully on the African continent. You know, too much disease. Uh, you needed to, you know, have the the ancient breeds and and you know what what I would call yard birds or yard chickens. You know, you had to use those. And and you know, learning what I learned about genetic potential and and all of that you know, during my Tyson days, I just, I just felt in my heart that wasn't true. I mean, there are certain principles that need to be employed. You need to, you need to need, you need to meet the chicken's needs, feed, water, safety, health, biosecurity, those sorts of things. And so I just felt like if we could meet those needs for the, for the bird, we'd be successful. And and sure enough, over the three-year pilot project with USAID and, and University of Tennessee, we have some of our African growers who are growing 100 chickens at a time at 7,000 feet of altitude in communities you, you've never heard of with no electricity, et cetera, that have performance that rivals a chicken grower in the U.S. So it, it can certainly be done. So helping African farmers understand the, the poultry rearing skills has been part of it. But it's also important for the people that work in our companies um i I found a deficit in problem solving and critical thinking skills Mm -hmm. um there's just this underlying tone that okay well that broke that won't work well no okay it broke let's fix it i don't have any tools to fix sure you do there's something around here we can use to fix that and so um, we've, we have spent a, a, a good bit of time helping the folks that work for us understand that things are going to happen, but when they happen, that's when it takes our ingenuity to figure out an answer to whatever problem we're facing and to do that, you know, fairly quickly. So, so working with our team on, and, and by the way, our growers, our farmers on, you know, critical thinking and problem solving skills has been very important. Of course, you know, if you've got a, you know, an American owner, um, you know, we've, we've helped them with English. Uh, that's, you know, and that's an important skill because, you know, English is kind of a universal language around, around the world. And, and they, they are taught English in the school system, but, they don't get to use it a lot. And, and, you know, some of the finer points of using the English language, uh, we, we try, you know, so we, we do English training as well. That's just a small sample, but, but, um, you know, one of the main things that, that I think beyond, you know, technical skills is we're trying to help develop leadership skills. Um, um you know how do you how do you get the most out of people how do you problem solve and create opportunities for people how how do you how do you uh get a group of people to stay engaged and and to do the right things at the right time uh kindliness is a huge issue on the continent and so uh we learned uh, some lessons from our friends at foundations for farming and, and they have a system that that they use, and you do things on time, at standard, and with joy, and 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 so without waste. And so, if you take those four principles, and you get things done on time, you you get things done efficiently, you do them 
at a high quality, at a standard, and then with joy, uh, th- that is an amazing tool set to use to, to help a group of people understand how to influence people beyond their direct span of control. That is a really tough and ingrained trait to transform, isn't it? To go from, from can't do to can do. How how do you how do how do you persuade or influence people who've been under that kind of of mindset for generations to change? Yeah, um, well, I learned from some early mistakes. I was way too quick to bail my team out and just send more money. Hmm. And over the last year and a half, I I figured out that my heart to help was becoming an enabler of bad behavior. Let me, you know, this will sound a little rough, but, but the end result is, is really important. And it's, it's, it's practically a parenting skill. You know, when, when our children are doing something that we don't want them to do, we correct them and we instruct them in the right way to do it. And, you know, there are certain consequences if they persist in bad behavior, right? And so what, what over the last year and a half, that the change that we've made is I've said, look, guys, I have provided you with ample capital to be successful. You guys have made some bad decisions or you've, you know, let things drop. And then, you know, we, I and the, and the country manager, have to figure out how to fix these things. We're going to change that. And and you're going to run. You are a registered Rwandan business. And you're going to run like a registered Rwandan business. And if you run out of money, then you're going to fold up shop and be bankrupt. And, and you know, that sounds harsh and rough. But let me tell you what they did. In our feed, in our feed operation, they cut their cost by 50%. Wow. Their operating cost. Because they knew if they didn't, they weren't going to have jobs. And, and, and now our feed mill is profitable. Our egg farm is profitable. We have a light at the end of the tunnel so that our little broiler business is going to be profitable. And it all came when I quit enabling bad behavior. And, and so, you know, creating an atmosphere of reality where we really are a business and, you know, as, as a feed manufacturer, for example, you know, lots of people that go out of business because they don't run good operations. Well, you could join them if you don't change. Now, you know, for you, you know, we have access to expertise at Tyson. You have expertise to a Fortune 100 CEO. You have every resource that anybody in an agricultural business in Rwanda would want that you can tap into. But you know what? It's your business and you have to run it. And and, and I tell you, um, you know, I love them. But I was hurting them by not providing that commercial entrepreneurial environment where you have to make it or you go do something else. Uh, and, and, and it has been a significant change in the culture 
you know, communications was terrible. There was a passive, you know, communication style where, you know, I'm not, this is broke, but I'm not going to say anything about it. But if they ask me about it, I'll tell them it's broke. Well, that's not the way to run a business. You know, if something breaks, you tell everybody and how can we fix this? I need your help. This has to be fixed, et cetera, et cetera. And, and our, our, our team has made the, 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 the jump from this passive in communicative, you know, I'm just here to, you know, earn a buck to no, I own this business. And in order for us to be successful, I have to communicate with my team members and, and I have to be part of the solution, not just a noticer of problems. And I tell you, it is so fulfilling to see them be successful. And, and you know what? They know they've changed and they know that the cultural change has been a part and a big part of their switch to profitability, which gives them some financial security for the future. It's been awesome. It sounds to me, Donnie, as, as though what you have brought to the, the people of Rwanda, those that you've worked with, is a, a larger sense of purpose than just earning a buck. Oh, definitely. Yeah. They, you know, we talk all the time about, see, our, let's, let's take our little broader business. So what I do ASAP provides a basically a zero interest loan for about three years to build the coop and give them equipment. And then every batch of chickens, they pay back roughly one fifteenth of the cost of that coop. But after they buy it, it's theirs. And, and, you know, they have a capital investment on their, on their farm that frankly could be leveraged. Right. And they could get a loan based on that, et cetera. And so uh, it provides them kind of a net worth opportunity that they didn't have before. But then what has happened is, and, and the, listen, the growers we work with are desperately poor. Our average household size is about five. Our average household income is about 85 cents a day. Mm. Now let that sink in. 85 cents a day household income for a family of five. These are desperately poor people. Now, when we bring chickens to them, then they are able to double and sometimes triple and in a few occasions quadruple their income. And you go, okay, well, great. They went from 85 to a buck 90. Whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, that's true financially and, and factually. But what if somebody doubled your income? Right? That's a big deal. And so, and you know, what they do is, and, and we, we help them a little bit, but they get this instinctively. The first thing they do, is pay school fees and get their kids in school. Hmm. The second thing they do is they buy their insurance. And the third thing they do is they always start another source of income. Now, it may be uh, going in with somebody or a couple of other people and buying a dairy cow and just praying every day that every calf she has is female, right? Or buying a few goats and starting goat farming or, uh, you know, buying, getting a sewing machine and just sitting on their front front stoop and and so enclosed for people in the neighborhood but they use the the capital that they earn through poultry production to earn more money and, and earn more income which is just phenomenal um and so and so i you know i i, I kind of going back to your question i say that to say this you know our what we're doing 
is in essence providing economic development through agriculture. And that can change the country. And, and we hope it does. Right. And, and, and that's been, that's our whole approach is, you know, there's an old saying, you can give a man a fish and feed him for a day or teach a man to fish and feed him for a lifetime. You know, what we're trying to do is, is teach them how to make money using agriculture as an income source. Talk to us about how this work and these projects have empowered women in Rwanda. You know, it's, it's great. So uh, my managing director, uh, call her the CEO of everything we do in Rwanda. She just turned 30. Uh, she's a graduate from the University of Arkansas here locally. Phenomenal. Katie's wonderful. Our, so let's call her the CEO. The COO is Rita and Shooty. Um, I think she's 30, maybe 31. Um, you know, Katie had experience in environmental and poultry science at the University of Arkansas. Uh, Rita uh, was fortunate enough to get an education in the U.S. And then she had a couple of internships at Tyson to get exposed to the poultry business. And, and honestly, uh, Tom, you know, we've tripped over the last, you know, seven years or so. Um, we've tripped over every stump in the field. You know, I mean, we've learned mm-hmm. all our lessons the hard way. Um, but these two ladies, um, you know, they, they, they turned around a business that was in a very difficult spot. And then probably half of our chicken growers are females, most of which are female single parent females. Uh, and, bit, you know, great raising chickens and doubling their income is giving them an opportunity that would be hard to come by any, you know, any other way. So uh, we, we feel, and, you know, a lot, a lot of, of the workforce, agricultural workforce in Rwanda are, are ladies. And we feel awesome about giving them a, a, an opportunity to create a source of income that really doesn't take time away from other things that they could do. That, you know, the poultry coop, you know, takes a few hours, but it's kind of spread through the day. And so if they have other things to do, whether it's, you know, make clothes or work, you know, in the fields or whatever it may be, they can do that, and it's not cannibalized by poultry production. It's it's all incremental income. So so uh, and it we have we have seen so many testimonies of of young sometimes young African women and certainly families that have been impacted in a significant way. You know, and and there's kind of two components. To that yeah, there's the economic development part, and their income doubled or tripled, and now they've created, you know, other income streams that, you know, have them in a better spot and will continue on. But there's also, I don't know, I don't know what it is. It's, it's fulfillment. It's pride in knowing that I have learned to do something. Yeah, I got some help, but I've learned to do something that I can support my family with for the rest of my life and maybe the rest of their life. And I have a skill that not many people in my country have, and I have opportunities that not many people in my country have. So uh, there, there's a there's a fulfillment, I don't know, pride, whatever that is, that that 
is I can see the look in people's eyes that, man, this is making a difference. Um, and by the way, um, you know, COVID has been very difficult on us over the last year. Uh, you know, a lot of the poultry sector was supported by restaurants and hotels. And of course, travel has been severely constrained and, you know, restaurant and hotel businesses have just been, you know, decimated. And so, um, you know, our biggest need today is, is you know, pretty much demand, right? Uh, and it's going to be a while. You know, some of these countries, it's going to take a while to, to, to recover from such a severe economic impact. But, you know, we're committed. And, and um, I, you know, I think that we have found ways where we can um, produce economic development in a way that also helps nutrition, you know, animal source food, eggs, chickens, whatever. So important to pregnant and lactating women and to preschool children, that sort of thing. So when you combine all that, I just, it's hard for me. It's hard for me to think of a better way to be spending my time. Well, let's turn to your experience in business leadership. And I'd like to pick your brains, if I may, and ask you to share some insights about this. What makes your short list of do's and don'ts for a business leader? That's a great, that's a great question. So uh, here's what I'm going to do. If you would go out and Google Donnie Smith servant leadership, there will be a few 30, 35 minute uh, podcasts or YouTube videos or whatever that uh, where I talk about my, the way I think about leadership and particularly servant leadership. And uh, I would just encourage your, your listeners to, to go do that. And, 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 and we talk about what's in the head the heart and the hands and or what are the habits of, of servant leaders that are, are really impactful leaders. But, you know, a couple of things that, that I would maybe highlight here today is it's really about them. It's not about you. You know, God gives us the opportunity to impact other people and to be involved in their lives. Folks spend about what a third of their life in the workplace. And, you know, as leaders, we're we're providing the environment in which most people spend most of their working life. That's a big deal. That's a huge responsibility. And so it's incumbent on us to make that environment engaging, encouraging, to develop the people and give them, I would call this call that empowering, you know, giving them the skills and, and that they need. To, to be able to do everything that they have the potential to do. And there's a lot, there's a lot that goes into doing that. And that's a little bit about what I try to crack open in, in that video. Um, so, you know, I could, you know, gosh, I could go on for hours about, you know, what I think about leadership and things you ought to do and things you ought not to do. But, but that's probably the most efficient use of our, of our, of our time today. Well, Donnie, you could be comfortably retired, digging your toes into some nice, warm, sandy beach someplace. What drives you to instead put your all into this work? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. You know, I, I was actually talking to a fellow over the weekend that is basically doing what you said. I mean, he, you know, I mean, he's fishing and hunting and hanging out. And, that, that, and I, you know, Tom, I, I don't really look at what I'm doing as retired. I'm looking at it as reloading. Mm -hmm. You know, uh -huh. I think 
I, I don't see any biblical evidence that God is through with us when we, you know, when we quit earning a paycheck from a particular company. I think God has a purpose for my life, and I think it's a significant part of that purpose is revolved around, you know, what I can do to take the the skills and the the, the lessons I've learned through, you know, a, a, a you know a work lifetime anyway, in the poultry industry, and then go deposit that in a place that desperately needs that, uh, you know, to be able to be better. And so, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't even refer to my as retired. I'm just doing other work and, and, and I'm, I'm, I am, I am passionate about making a difference in the lives of people who I get the opportunity to influence, whether that's in leadership development or whether that's in economic development, agricultural work. So, um, I don't know. Maybe that's a different way to look at it, but I tell you what, it is super fulfilling when you're talking to. So, so here's a, here's a quick conversation. Um, so I talked to one of our young growers, and and I asked her. I said, "So, you know, you made forty thousand francs a month growing too. What'd you do with the money?" And she said, "Well, we had over the seven or eight years that we had been say, you know, been married, we had saved up about that much money." Um, and so we put our, that money. So think about it in six weeks, they had earned as much money as they had saved in six or eight years. Okay. So let that sink in for a second. Mm -hmm. And then what they did is they went and bought a cow, a pregnant cow, and they took care of the cow. The cow had a calf. Thank God it was a female calf. And so what they did is they took that to her sister. And her sister takes care of the calf. They bring the cow back to their house. Now they've got milk. The the country will go out and artificially inseminate it themselves. So, you know, now they've got another pregnant cow and praying every day that it's a female so they can continue to build their little herd. And they've improved their nutritional outcomes. You know, they've improved their economic outcomes. Uh, and, and it's just, it's just so rewarding to know that Frazine and, and, you know, we don't even talk the same language, but Frazine and her family will never be the same because God told me to take my chicken skills to Africa. That's, Tom, that's pretty cool. That's a, that's a great way to spend your life. I would say so. Well, you know, now that you've experienced it for a while, what's your counsel to others who are getting close to retirement? I mean, we have this kind of mindset, don't we, where we that we hit a certain age and boom, you're retired. But it sounds like we're knocking down those walls quite a bit these days. Wouldn't you agree? Well, I sure hope so. You know, you, you God and, and your companies or companies over time have invested you know, thousands and thousands of dollars in teaching you skills and, and, you know, whether leadership skills or particular skills. And, and I just encourage everybody listening, look, think about two things. Think about number one, what you're good at, what you like to do. What are you skilled at? What do you enjoy doing? And then also then think about who in the world could benefit from that. And, and, you know, there's a, there's a verse in scripture that says to whom much is given, much is required. And and we certainly won the genetic lottery. 
being born in America or wherever your listeners are, right? I mean, we are we are blessed. So we have been given much. And I think, you know, from us, it requires something. And so, you know, we often get bogged down when we ask ourselves the question, well, yeah, but what difference can one person make? Well, let's let's reframe that question. And let's say, okay, in what one person's life can I make a difference? And if you can, then you should. And, and I just hope that we don't waste the twilight, whatever you want to call them, years of our lives fishing and hanging out on the beach. Now I got nothing. Hey, look, there's nothing wrong with going fishing. I love to fish. I love. I live on a lake. I love lake life. I you know love going to the beach. So I'm not. I'm not. I don't want you to feel guilty when you go enjoy the life that you earned from those years of toil and labor. Not at all. That's that's a blessing and you should enjoy it. But man, don't make it all about that. Think about what you can do. Maybe, maybe you know, maybe, maybe you can't change the world, but I guarantee you, you can change somebody's life. And and by the way, you don't have to go to Africa to do it like I do. And you can go you can go across town or down the street or somewhere. But but there's somebody on this planet that can benefit from you, your heart and your resources and what you've been trained to do. And I just I just don't want you to waste that because, you know, man, the world needs folks that will jump in with both feet and say, I don't know how much difference I can make, but I'm going to make a difference to somebody. So y'all move over and let me in. That's Donnie Smith, former Tyson Foods CEO and supposedly retired, but actually as busy as ever, making good things happen for people and economies in Africa. Thanks so much, Donnie. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot. I've enjoyed it. And that concludes our series on Purpose Driven Business. I'm Tom Martin. This has been Ag Future, presented by Alltech. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to Ag Future wherever you listen to podcasts.